Time, yes, to meet our guest, Karim Assad, activist and lawyer, is joining us. Jeff Bergoglio, 640 Toronto producer, and Jeff Parks, the CEO of Stack Capital. To all of you, I say good morning. Good morning. All right, Jeff, you are new to this format. I want to welcome you. So I'm going to bring you into this. So I'm going to bring you into it gently. We're going to start with a, a conversation that I just had with City Councilor Brad Bradford, where he said something quite telling about his willingness to bring his young family onto the TTC. To be honest, it, it's really disturbing. My daughters are, are a lot younger, three-year-old and, and eight months. And I'm not taking them on the TTC because, you know, they're, too often you're having incidents like that of things that make folks feel really uncomfortable and they don't feel safe riding transit. Um, And that's what this young woman experienced. And it's totally unacceptable. Jeff, you live downtown and you have a a, a new family, a growing family. What are your thoughts on taking your young family on the TTC? Uh, I'm I'm the same with, uh, with, with that, with Brad's decision there too. I, I I have a, I have a wife who's pregnant right now and putting her on the TTC. it makes me nervous sometimes, so I try and either drive her to different locations or I put her on uh, put her on Uber. So yeah, I try and avoid it as much as possible. Yeah, and Karima, this is this this is to me this is a, a problem that everybody should want to solve, whether you're on the left of the political spectrum or the right of the political spectrum, because the more people that we can get on the subway, the less pressure we have on the roads, the safer the roads are. This to me is is. Uh, a no-brainer, and safety is the barrier to entry, isn't it? Especially for a woman. Well, the TTC is critical infrastructure in the city, and there are a lot of people who don't even have the option of opting out. So, yes, safety is very important, um, and you know the way that we bring about safety. Part of that is having uh, access to security, better security, but there's also these underlying factors because there are other pockets of the city that are now less safe than it used to be. Um, And I think that has a lot to do with the availability of resources for people who are struggling with mental health, addiction, and homelessness. Uh, Glenn, before we bring you into this, let's listen to the what the genesis of all of this was. There's a viral TikTok that really is making people wake up to the, the, the danger below our streets. And then tell me why as I'm about to get off, literally standing there right in front of the doors, I lock in and what do I hear right behind me? Like the breath on my ear, I hear, I think I found someone I can... Murder. That's what she's mouthing. Murder. I think I found someone I can... And he's talking about me. The way I ran out of the TTC, the, ran I, the way I ran out of that station and up the steps at Dundas, girlies in Toronto, stay safe because the crazies are really out. So, uh, Glenn, this seems to me like low-hanging fruit. We we can fix safety on the TTC, can't we? <laughs> saying we can fix safety on the TTC is like saying we can get rid of all traffic in the city. The, the, yes, but there is a lot of underlying problems that need to be addressed. I think Karima said it best. I am one of the individuals who rely on this critical infrastructure. It is not the safest thing in the world, but there is a lot of reasons why, and a lot of it comes down to our social safety nets failing. So, yes, we can fix safety on the TTC, but we need to also remember that achieving perfect safety on the CTC is a idealistic dream. Yeah. And then second, until we properly address issues of finding affordable housing, helping these people get off the streets, helping to actually address uh, drug addiction and rising homelessness and other mental illness, then no, we won't ever see this problem improve. It's well, a shame. But well, we well hold to- on. I, I want to push back a little bit. That's you can. 
No, this is this is a closed system. If you have the ability to police a closed system, you can at the very listen, if we appreciate that the reason the TTC exists is to get people from point A to point B, then surely we can identify with enough support the people who should not be down in the subway system. I, I don't agree with that. Policing is a ret, is a retroactive response. We need a proactive response. So saying that more police will stop instances like this man muttering just a vile sentence to this woman. No, she would be able to go to police after a report had happened. But more police on the present, more police presence scattered throughout the TTC isn't a bandaid that will fix all the problems. Well, I'm not suggesting it would fix all the problems. Let's bring Jeff. Let's 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 talk about this for a second. The the idea that more police in the system. Uh, in the TTC wouldn't solve this problem or at least make it better? I don't know, because you, sure, there's more police in the system, but then where are those individuals going? You're pushing them to the street level and then there's issues on the street level to, to like, what what's the real problem here? It goes back to the individuals being on the street, the homelessness, the lacking households, the, the drug issues, the mental health issues. Like, we need to be putting funding into that and that solves your issue where that individual is not going down into the subway system because it might be too cold that night and they need they need warmth. They want shelter. So I think there's a lot of problems other than just trying to sit there and say, hey, let's throw police at this and let's fix it that way because I think the problem moves. All right. We're not going to solve this problem during our think tank alone today. This is a bigger conversation, but let's move to education. And I'm, I'm going to ask you, Karina, is this a Karima? Is this a, an example? If you can't if you can't beat them, join them. We're hearing stories uh, that uh, Ontario College is soon going to use AI to teach students. Well, uh, I think from what I understand in the story, um, it's meant to be more supplemental. Um, so it's not going to be a primary instructor, but more of a tutor. Um, you know, I, I think that if it is enhancing learning, there, that's a positive. Um, there are obviously shortcomings to AI. We saw that ChatGPT um, just this past week had some pretty serious glitches where it was being incomprehensible. Um, and, and there... It's something to be said about the one-on-one between a tutor and student, because if the student doesn't know what questions they need to be asking, you know, the, there's only so much the AI can do. Um, but as a supplemental tool, I'm, I'm all for it. Glenn, a, a year ago, nobody was talking about AI the way we're talking about it today. Now we have an, an institution of higher learning that is, uh, is, is creating a, a supplemental educational support system for its students. So who's to say where that AI is going to be in 10 years. I mean, I, I don't think it's out of the realm of the possible to think that, yeah, we could have synthetic teachers 10 years from now. Well, uh, two things. Like, first, I am more than willing to accept our robot overlords, and <laughs> that seems to be the way we're going. But I also think that this is the problem with AI. It is very beneficial, has a lot of benefits, and we are still so early in its development that integrating it in a form like this can be good. But I can see much more negative coming from this right away. I think this would have been better rolled out as a very limited pilot program as opposed to integrated as a tutoring substitute. There's just too many variables that AI can just, well, we've all seen it. AI either decided to go increasingly racist or increasingly hate-filled or increasingly misogynistic. And until we really find out why our AI is constantly doing this, I think letting it help to direct the next generation is problematic at best. Jeff, you, uh, in your role at uh, Stack Capital, you're constantly looking at, you know, companies that are ahead of the curve, technology companies. Where do you think 
this AI is going to take us 10 years from now in terms of uh, education? I think it'll be absolutely fantastic. Like, obviously, there's glitches in, in the beginning. But for you to be able to reallocate resources, that human touch resource where, let's say it's a math program, it's standard, standard that AI can show kids, hey, these are the equations. This is how this is going to work. And then you can reallocate that teacher where that teacher can help one-on-one individuals. So I think there's some very big benefits with AI in the classroom and not just in a classroom, like around the world from automation to robots being in manufacturing facilities. I think it's going to make lifestyle a lot better for individuals, but a lot of people will have to be retooled in regards to their careers. Yeah. Karima, let's talk about that. If we, if, if we, look at the entire system holistically uh is this an uh, is ai an opportunity to redirect funds to more to to where they are absolutely needed in the education system and perhaps pare back on some of the um on some of the less important let's call them less important jobs right we can and we can retool those people to have different jobs in a new system i think there there's always an opportunity um and in the ways that we use ai You know, the focus should be on eliminating the more tedious tasks, um, things that are rote and where there's need for creativity and a human touch, right? That's where resources should be directed. Um, Now, that's not always the way AI is actually playing out in practice, right? We're seeing, uh, and this is not the the school example, but AI-generated art, for example, (laughs) removes the human element of the art, um, so I, the attention has to be like, how, how are we deploying these tools and for what purpose and how do we, you know, keep the human element alive? All right. I want to move on to a story that might require all three of you to overshare. And I, I seem to overshare all the time when I'm in front of this microphone. I don't know why I'm not going to on this one, but there is a story that a 20 year old driver is facing charges after allegedly attempting to have sex with his passenger while driving near Peterborough. So the question to all of you is what's the craziest thing you've done behind the wheel? And we'll start, uh, we'll start with Jeff. I'm going to keep mine PG here. So the craziest, the craziest thing that was the other day, we were, uh, we were down just south of Buffalo, 45 minutes south of Buffalo. And I'm sure you guys saw that entire Buffalo, uh, Buffalo snowstorm. They completely shut down a whole section of that state. And we had to get home because my wife needed an OBGYN uh, appointment. So we ended up talking to one of the police officers. She's like, ah, you can risk it by going through this area. And he's like, Mike, get pulled over, lose your license, impound your car. I was like, I don't want to take that route. So ended up, we ended up driving, which something that should have taken two hours, we spent seven hours in the worst snowstorm I have ever been in in my life. You couldn't see like, you couldn't see like six inches in front of your car. And that was the, the scariest, wildest thing I've done behind the wheel. All right. This is, uh, and I'm glad you made it home safe and I hope you got to the doctor's appointment. But Glenn, this, this, this gentleman here in Peterborough is taking distracted driving to a new level. Yeah, like I've definitely done stupid things when I've been younger. This is this isn't different. <laughs> this is definitely a special type of dumb. Um, if you're asking me what I've done, then uh, <laughs> when I was younger, and I will say it was something like 15 years ago, so I, you know I've definitely learned from it. But it was when me and my friends were driving around in the winter. Uh, there was a side street we saw that was basically empty. So my friend who was driving decided he was going to drift around on the street a little bit and lost control of the car. And next thing you know, the side of the car has hit a telephone post and we're like, oh, this could have been a lot worse. So luckily we weren't going too fast. The car was 
pretty much not damaged beyond some scratches, but it was that wake up call like, right. We're not immortal just because we're teenagers, yeah. so we shouldn't do this. <laughs> yeah, actually, you bring up a good point. I, I, I will share one story. When I was in college, my friends and I were off campus, and we saw a, a temporary stop sign that was on the street, and it was, it was on a, in a temporary post, and we thought to ourselves, this would look great in our dorm room. <laughs> and we, t- we took it home. What we didn't know is that the campus police had just installed cameras in the parking lot and identified us pretty damn quickly. And uh, what, there was like a, a, temp, a, a short-term cat-and-mouse game where we realized we can't hide from these people. We're going to have to give it back. And then we were put on super-secret double probation. And, and I, I kept my nose clean for the rest of college. But uh, Karima, I have now shared. Now it's time for you to share. What's the dumbest thing you've done in or around the wheel? It's a bit early to incriminate oneself. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually, I don't drive. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't have a story that I have perpetrated myself. Um, but I, I, I ride a scooter. Um, and you know, uh, I, I will say that there are times, um, I, I'm not always paying attention to the red light and we can just go. Uh, it's like a luxury of being a semi-pedestrian. Yeah. Yeah. It's the rolling stop. Exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I remember the first time I had gone skiing in about 20 years. And the, the biggest difference between 20 years before and the first time I went skiing again was the fact that helmets were mandated. And I get to the I was like, well, this is new. I've never worn a helmet before when I ski. And as I was going down the hill, I could not believe that helmets hadn't been mandated sooner. I said to myself, like, of course we should be wearing helmets. We should have been wearing helmets this entire time. But I guess you don't know what you don't know. And it takes it takes some sort of seminal event to realize that, yes, looking at your cell phone while driving is a very dangerous thing. And, you know, it, it takes obviously people should know not to have sex while they're driving. But um, it, it does it does highlight, I think, Jeff, how important it is um, to, to consider that the situation that we're living in is not perfect and we will come up with with new new rules and regulations to make things additionally uh, safe in the future. Well, what happens when self-driving cars come? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, self-driving cars, I don't think are going to be the the uh, the solution until all cars are self-driving. Until they're all networked together and they all know what the other one is doing until then, the human element is still going to make things dangerous. That's a good point. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, uh, let's 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 talk about what the worst thing is um, to do with your cell phone if you've ever uh, if if you've ever dropped it in water. Have you have have you ever uh, forgotten that your um, that your phone was in your pocket and it, when you were in a bathing suit and jumped in a pool, or has it ever fallen into a puddle, or did you ever drop it into a bathtub? What's and then what did you do with it? Because now Apple is saying the worst thing you can do is put it in rice. Uh, we'll go to Karima. We'll start with you. Sure. Um, I mean, I've had a range of clumsy experiences um, with a cell phone. Sometimes it doesn't make it. Uh, the most recent, I was trying to canoe, um, but capsized because I don't actually know how to canoe, um, and was able to retrieve the phone. And thankfully, we found out that, um, I guess there's a new feature where it, it can withstand a certain level of water. Yeah. Um, and, and so we didn't put it in rice. Um, we didn't, uh, we just let it 
sit, um, which is basically what Apple is suggesting. They say, you know, shake the water out and don't interfere with it. And uh, the phone still works to this day. And Glenn, uh, have, have you ever tried something like this? Because I remember seeing an ad for Apple phones that said, if you, if you get it wet and there's water in the connector, um, then, then wait a few minutes because water will be detected and the, and the phone will quietly vibrate and push the water out of the connector. It's a, I'm surprised they didn't come up with this sooner, but it is what it is. How have you dealt with this problem in the past? Uh, it's ranged similar to Karima where some of them had to be complete write-offs and other times, uh, most recently, I guess, why I have the phone I have now. My last one, well, it fell in the toilet. There's no polite yeah. way to say it. <laughs> and then I pulled it out as soon as I can. Uh, yes, I did try putting it in rice, but that also wasn't the only problem with the phone at that time. It also had a crack screen and there, there was a lot of problems. So that phone was dead. I understand what Apple is saying with their new recommendations to pretty much let it sit. But the fact that they're also saying that it could take 24 hours to fully dry, so let it sit, is unrealistic to me. My phone might not even last 24 hours on a full charge, so to yeah. sit there and let it dry and not charge it sometimes isn't an option. I would definitely, we can't put it in the rice anymore, fine. But I'd be the type of person who is literally, you know, waving it around or shaking it around or even blowing in it like it's Nintendo cartridge. <laughs> exactly. It, just, it feels like I'm doing more as opposed to just letting time solve the problem. Uh, Jeff, uh, some people do their best work in the bathroom. It's also the most dangerous place for your phone. It's a sort of a catch-22, isn't it? it there, there's a serious problem with the bathroom, 100%. I, <laughs> I'll, get, I'll give you my story in terms of what happened to me is I actually was using the washroom. This was after this was after cleaning my entire apartment. This was spring cleaning. I had all these papers on my bed, and I forgot that the cell phone was on the bed. So I collected all those underlying papers. I took them, and I was in a 40-story tower downtown. And I ended up throwing it down the recycling chute. And the phone down the underlying chute, I'm just like, I went around my apartment because I didn't realize I threw it down there. I was just like, where the hell is this thing? And there's no find my iPhone. I didn't have that. I had a BlackBerry at that point in time. Uh-huh. And it was just like, how am I supposed to find this thing? So I'm just like, I think I threw the damn thing down the chute. So we went down, <laughs> we went down to the garbage room. And rang my phone, and yes, it was in the trash compactor in the basement of the building. Let's just say I didn't get that phone back. Yeah, I was a, listen, none of you can, can top me. I, I threw my passport out at the airport before boarding an international flight. Jesus. Yeah, no, I, I was 18 at the time. I, 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 was, let me, I was a very dumb 18. I'm a, I'm a very wise 47 now, but yes, I get to the airport only to th- literally throw it out with my trash from the, and I eat Burger King too. That's the most embarrassing thing. I, I, I've, I throw out my Burger King garbage and my passport simultaneously. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, there is a story in the national post, um, about Canadians quitting their jobs and not giving proper, um, uh, uh, notice to their bosses and the bosses now looking to recoup uh, damages. Could this be a new, could this be a new thing? Are people playing fast and loose with the term employment? And now they're seeing the reaction to that by their bosses. Uh, Glenn, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on this? I got, I remember reading this story and then learning myself that, oh, it wasn't just a political, it wasn't just a workplace etiquette to give a two weeks notice that <laughs> you are most of the time contractually obliged to give some type of notice. So I think that is something a lot of people, maybe my generation and younger, are not aware of, that this isn't just tact. This is something that gets you in trouble, because I know quite a few people who have definitely quit and 
uh, let's just say not good ways. But uh, <laughs> is this a new norm or something? I don't think this is a new norm. I think this has always kind of been the way. There's always employees who are better than others, always ones that respect the worst place uh, more than others. But I do think that maybe this is the time that it needs to be when people are hired, just kind of, hey, make sure you read the contract. Even if you plan on quitting, if you don't give us this notice, there could be legal actions such as this. Karima, is this um, is this a situation where the pandemic has changed how we view work? Is this an issue with people not reading the small font on their employment contract or is this a generational thing? What's your take? It's probably all of the above. Um, and I think that there is a more general sense and culture now that, you know, you loyalty to a particular workplace, that notion is all but dead um, because I don't think it's always been reciprocated. So where there's a lack of respect, you will find things like quitting on short notice. Um, I, I agree. The, the contract is sort of the way to go. Um, but practically speaking, uh, unless there are damages that the company incurs, um, they may have limited recourse. It, but is that a is that a defense that would hold up to say, well, I wasn't respected my, by my boss, so I quit and just never came back? No, I, I just think that's what's happening in people's minds. Um, you know, if there were, for example, um, harassment issues or some kind of workplace safety issue, um, then maybe that is defensible to say I could no longer um, be there. Um, and, and I'm speaking off the cuff. I'm not an employment lawyer. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's just what's happening behind the scenes and motivating people um, to uh, not provide the proper notice. Jeff, what would happen if somebody at your office just up and quit and didn't come back and didn't give you the proper notice? Would you would you be litigious enough to go get that money? Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a tough question. I like if for us, like if we're a small team, right? So if somebody, somebody leaves and they're just like, Hey, I'm up and I'm out of here. That has a serious effect on the underlying business. So I don't know if I would be litigious at that point, but I would sit there and say like, okay, Hey, are you able to give a grace period where you're working for a week or two weeks until we find a different candidate to come back into your position? So that, 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 that'd be definitely be a tough scenario for us. Uh, Let's finish up with a story that I feel is popping up more and more on my social media feeds. And I don't know whether the algorithm just thinks I'm into these stories or whether this is becoming increasingly a problem. A Toronto nail salon posted a video of a woman who took off refusing to pay and the confrontation happened outside of their salon. All right, I, I don't want to assume that uh, that all people, um, I don't want to assume who goes to the nail salon and who doesn't, but I'm going to assume, Karima, you probably know more people who go to nail salons than the men on the panel. Um, is this, do people do this? Do they do the nail equivalent of dining and ditching? Um, I have seen a few instances where after the fact, there's argument um, about the quality of service and, you know, disagreement about, whether to pay the full price or not. I've never seen anything like this except on social media. And to your point, I do think that algorithms are feeding us a lot of content where it's just 
strife between people and sort of fights on the street and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I don't know if it's actually that common or just what people want to watch. Um, but, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, the Internet, in, to some degree, you know, makes it possible to shame people in ways that uh, you would otherwise have anonymity in a big city. So, you know, people beware. Glenn, is this a sign of sort of larger problems at, at play in society or is, you know, are we are we just dealing with people who who want something for free and are willing to fight to say, I you didn't do it right, so I'm not going to pay? I think it's a bit more of the latter, and that group has always existed. And in this particular circumstance, the one that we're talking about, this was over a $5 discrepancy from what I'm able to read from the story. So I understand the staff, you worked for, like you did a service, you should get full pay. But chasing somebody out and touching them, grabbing their car, holding them back, risking assault for $5 is not logical to me. It really doesn't make any sense. So this could have been resolved with simply filming the woman, getting her license plate if they really felt that way. But physically getting in the way for such a low amount of money is beyond stupid and risky to me. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. But thank you to all three of you, to Karima, to Jeff and to Glenn. I appreciate you all joining us on Think Tank. Thank Thank you. you.